You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Welcome all to episode 134 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'll be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, uh, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How's your good Friday, Michael? Uh, it's good. Well, as it is every year. And, and better than all Fridays are good, but this one's better than most. <laughs> also with us is Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm actually going to correct you on that, David. I am now Associate Professor of English. I got my promotion letter this week, and this is the first place I am announcing that. Sweet. You leveled up. I did. I, I, <laughs> I ate that mushroom. That extra $25 a year is really going to come in handy. It <laughs> is, and don't don't you doubt that for a minute. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you also get more uh, more more hit points, and your and your Thaco goes up too, if I remember correctly. That's true. Actually, down because high Thaco is bad. Oh well, but when you get to D twenty, armor class goes up. But whatever. Oh, okay, okay. See, I I'm I'm still in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition. Okay, okay. Well, that's wow. That's a, you guys, are, yeah, you, you, guys are, you guys are playing the devil's game. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, nerdetry. Um, yes, indeed. Well, uh, dear listeners, before we get into today's topic, which is Cain, the the guy in the Bible, um, this one's for you, Brett Gilbert. Uh, so if you've been waiting for a week and with uh, bated breath to find out what our topic was, since I had no idea last week, uh, now now you know. But before we talk about that, we have housekeeping to do. What what sort of housekeeping have we to do, gentlemen? Well, we've got two email, no, three emails and one blog comment we're going to talk about today. So, uh, David, won't you tell us what Mark Feldbush has to say? Certainly. Uh, this is an email from Mark Feldbush. Gentlemen, I've been listening to the podcast for three plus years now. Oh, yeah. Long time listener. Cool. And continue to enjoy the wide variety of topics you discuss. I've also enjoyed the new podcast you've added to the network. I'm not really a quote, science guy, unquote, but I'm looking forward to that show as well. The listener who wrote about her disappointment that you had moved away from the Christian blankest naming convention joked that you couldn't name the show The Christian Scientist, as that name was already taken. My warped mind immediately thought, well, there's The Christian Naturist, but alas, that name is already taken as well. 
and you'd attract a whole different crowd with that name. Indeed, we would. <laughs> so the so the book of nature it is. I'm looking forward to its debut. He sent a link along with that email, and uh, I did not click on it. I assume it is some sort of Christian nudist convention. Yeah, I, I didn't click on it either. I'm I'm going to go by uh, uh, faith in things unseen. <laughs> <laughs> things mercifully unseen, <laughs> yeah. things that cannot be un unseen. Yeah, yeah, right. and 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 I don't think a uh, Christian <laughs> naturist podcast starring any of us would draw any crowds. I'm afraid. <laughs> Send them, you know, fleeing and weeping from their computers, more likely. <laughs> no, Just be no, glad no. it's not a video podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan, Nathan, is, Nathan is quickly changing the subject. Yes, I am. Uh, we also got an email from David Manley, uh, also who mentions the the upcoming Book of Nature podcast. He says, "I have listened to the podcast for a year now, so another good, steady, faithful listener." Originally, I came across the podcast after reading a comment on Roger Olson's blog. I left that comment, so I know which comment he's talking about. Uh, so the Christian Humanist podcast and Roger Olson are forever connected in my mind. Quick uh, explanation of that: uh, Roger Olson, who's one of one of the big uh, sort of evangelical, but on the progressive end of evangelicalism, bloggers, uh, posted a post about a year ago said, "In search of a Christian humanism." So I mean, why wouldn't I post a, a link to our site <laughs> there, right? Exactly. I had, with, I had this confused with that guy whose book you reviewed so negatively. Oh, was there an Olson I whose book I reviewed? It wasn't Olson, it was a Roger. Oh, Roger Woolsey. The yes. Woolsey, yeah, that's it. I thought, <laughs> I thought, why would he be linking to our site? Hi there, Roger. Uh, <laughs> anyway, going Rogers, on with David, Rogers everywhere. Going on with David Manley's email. Uh, I really enjoyed the episodes on Pulp Fiction, Ghostbusters, and C.S. Lewis. Also, I appreciate the more recent episodes on meteorology and physics. In high school, a few of my science teachers uh, seemed tired or bored with the material, and they passed their apathy on to me. However, the episodes on meteorology and physics really caught my attention. Uh, I imagine he might have enjoyed the psychology episode, too, when that one dropped. Uh, the episodes were informative, interesting, and delightful. I am now out of adjectives. All right, so that's the... He's kind of given us a general principle here, which is don't judge any subject by your high school teacher's presentation of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is not to I... say there's not many wonderful high school teachers. Please don't send us those emails. We're thankful for you <laughs> and what you do. Yes, indeed. Well, anyway, he goes on to ask a question about uh, a statement that I made. So this is David Manley again. I have one question about the episode on physics. Nathan discussed the word telos and defined it as the final cause, goal, aim, or end. Also, he used the example of an acorn and an oak tree, all very helpful. However, Nathan mentioned in passing Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, so on and so forth. Uh, he made reference to the near context. Uh, the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. David Manley goes on, I've been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I've read verse 48 in conjunction with Verses 21 through 47, so a much broader uh, spectrum within the sermon. Uh, there's a repeated refrain throughout the section. You have heard that it was said. So there appears to be a connection, and verse 48 seems to be the conclusion of the larger section. I wonder, Nathan, would you say that verse 48, you therefore must be perfect, 
as your heavenly father is perfect as a reference to loving one's enemies, or would you view it as a, as connected to the larger section of verses 21 to 47 and the removal of thoughts, words, and acts that are sinful, such as anger, murder, lust, adultery, and so on. Uh, he says, I don't want to come across as nitpicky. I'm just curious as to how Nathan would view verse 48 and whether or not it is related to the love of one's enemies or the overall righteousness of 21 to 47. He says, I appreciate the podcast and the work that goes into it. Thank you, David. Let me respond briefly to that. I think you're right uh, that all of those things, I mean, represent that pattern of a sort of uh, a narrower conception of righteousness moving over to a broader, more inclusive sense of righteousness. So I would say that, you know, I, I think you're right to include all of that in the notion of uh, telea or completion or perfect, perfection. Uh, I just tend to focus on the righteous and the wicked because it's close by. And yeah, I think you did just catch me with some tunnel vision there. So good catch, David. I appreciate it. All right. We also have an email from Jason Hewitt. It says, hello and happy Easter. I'm a little behind, so sorry for a late post to this episode. I have to comment on how I was a little surprised that when you addressed one of your listener questions about whether to send their children to a Christian high school or college and which would be less likely to make them lose faith, you didn't take that to task. Why would a secular slash public school make anyone lose their faith? Having been to a public high school and Christian college, I can definitely say the latter was more dangerous to my faith than the former. I think I would have had to respond with something about how school shouldn't be the place to raise one's faith. I wonder if a Christian college may only be good for people who want to pursue a career within the realm of theology and religion. If a school makes you lose your faith, perhaps the fault lies with those charged with teaching that faith to begin with. If your faith cannot stand up to the challenge of other ideas or even direct opposition, that's a much different and larger issue, I think. Sorry for getting a little preachy. I know it's not your show's format to address those types of issues. Homebrewed Christianity is probably the place that would happen more. But since you are all Christian college professors, I wonder if it was a conflict of interest for you to address the motivations for children to go to one or the other. On a different note, I want to say that I enjoy your show a lot. It's safe to say it's the most conservative thing I listen to, so I guess that kind of tells you where I'm at. I decided to give you a listen after several plugs by Trip Fuller on his podcast, and I'm glad I did. Thanks. No, thank you, Jason. Uh, Nathan, why don't you address that uh, remark, too, because you went back and listened to that episode. Yeah, I did. Uh, that was on our Ghostbusters episode, and the the email was from listener Chen Boulay. Uh, and... I have to agree on one hand that, you know, Jason Hewitt is right that we never did say it's not very likely to make you lose your faith. However, uh, I would say that at the very least we implied responses to that, or at least I did. I feel like I addressed it probably most directly uh, when I said that, you know, a school is not a place to uh, basically set up walls around your ideas, but rather it's a place to explore new ideas and to engage with things that you wouldn't have engaged with had you not been at that school. If a school's not doing that, it's not really doing its job very well. Now, I'll grant that I didn't directly say, so don't worry about losing your faith. I thought that that was implied there, though. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, yes, I'll grant I didn't say it directly, but uh, I think that the implication was there at the very least. I mean, do you think I'm being fair with that, guys? My, my memory was that we that we said that, but I, I guess we didn't say it like as you say we didn't say it in those words, right? Mm -hmm. So we, now, we, yeah, we certainly meant to. Now yeah. I'll grant that all three of us are Christian college professors. On that episode, all four of us were. Uh, I would still maintain that again that 
intersection between ideas is itself a good reason to go to a Christian college to study at a Christian college. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I do work at a Christian college and I do so to a large extent because I believe in the mission of the place. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I got to feed my kids too, but I mean, I could do a goodly number of things to feed my kids. And frankly, I could do things that pay a little bit better to feed my kids. Uh, but yeah, I do believe in what I do. I hope that, uh, I hope that folks other than me do as well. <laughs> he also, uh, Jason also left a comment on our C.S. Lewis episode on the blog. He said, you all agreed there's a problem with the notion of universal morality. It's been a while since I led Lewis and you didn't exactly expound on this much. Can you explain a little more about what he thought and the issue you take with it? Yeah, and that's me again, isn't it? <laughs> I, 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 I think we all, or at least I, you and I both complained about the universal morality thing. Right. So by universal morality, I mean what I was largely objecting to, and I mean David issued a helpful corrective. So David, once I'm finished with this, you can issue your corrective, and then we can move on to today's stuff. Uh, the what, what would you call it? An appendix or an epilogue to the abolition of man? Uh, that those ending pages. Uh, contains basically sort of a a virtue list, if you will. You know, I mean, uh, courage, magnanimity, justice, mercy, so on and so forth. And then a list of excerpts from sacred texts from various world religions. And the argument that I made was that arranging your book thus, ending it with this idea that there are sort of these uh, universal virtues that all of the world religions sort of chip into all of these buckets and that the buckets themselves are what is universal presents a picture of the plurality of religions that I think undermines the radical differences among them. Now, David issued a counter argument that said, I'm making too much of it. David, won't you go ahead and reiterate that? Well, uh, the, the if I remember correctly, what I said in the episode uh, is that when you um, when you see C.S. Lewis uh, at his best interacting with uh, eras and cultures that have um, serious differences in values and perceptions of the world and how it works and how society ought to work and so forth, uh, he he's he's much more careful in showing how those differences make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I I wanted well the first corrective was you know that 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 move is not one that C.S. Lewis makes when he's on his game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's right because that's when I I postulated that there were two people yeah. writing under that name, Professor right. Lewis and Jack. <laughs> right. I mean, the second thing that I would say is I I, I don't think that we're going to dispute universal morality because if in the end of days God will judge the earth. Um, I don't think he's going to, you know, I, I think he's going to have a consistent way of doing that. Um, what I would dispute, and I think I'll agree, I think you, I'm agreeing with you here, Nathan, is that you're not going to get to universal morality by hopping all the, all of the human value systems together and boiling them down to a common denominator. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with that, I'll For, agree. Yeah. So, the, First, yeah, I don't know the, that so that the, could be done. Right. <laughs> and second, I don't know that what would be left would be universal morality. Precisely, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> and my in other suspicion words, is not much would be left. Right. So, yeah. in other words, the metaphysical claim 
on one hand, and then the historical sociological claim on the other hand aren't the right. same claim. Well, and, 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 the I, th and I think claim. Lewis flattens those at the end of Abolition of Man. Yeah, and, and, the, and the canonical claim. I, I think there was a need for God to descend in fire and thunder to a mountain and give his law instead of just sort of poking Moses and saying, hey, you know, go to the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Hittites and, you know, whatever they have in common, that's your code. Right. So. Be anyhow. excellent to each other. Party <laughs> on, dudes. There you go. <laughs> that, 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 that's universal enough for me. <laughs> Don't hit unless you can get away with it. <laughs> and, and, well, and, and once again, Nathan Nathan uses a pop culture reference before 1992. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to deny it. 1997, I'll insist, but... <laughs> All right, then. Um, moving on now to the topic, yeah? Yeah. Sweet deal. Well, uh, as I said, this is sort of in response to Brett Gilbert saying, hey, do more Bible Guy episodes, or Bible Gal. We've never, we've never done an episode on a female character from the Bible. Oh, that's true. We haven't done that many episodes on characters from the Bible, though. That's right, true, right. too. We did Judas right. and Elijah, and I think those are our only two. Well, next time we need to do, like, Jezebel or something. I don't know. Or we could do a good woman. Oh, well, yeah, we, but they're less interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, we've done Judas, and now we're doing Cain, so. <laughs> yeah, I think I think one probably led me to the other. So, Cain. Um, I'm going to pitch this to you, Nathan. Uh, first uh, I'll let you retell the story, um, but paying particular attention to things we miss because we don't know Hebrew, and focusing also on the elements that the Genesis story of Cain puts into play that are going to come up later. Yeah, uh, this is actually one of those sections of Genesis that I'd really never done the uh, exegetical, philological work on before, which is why I, I, I asked David to pitch this to me when we were doing show prep. There is some fascinating stuff in Genesis chapter 4, which is where uh, the very brief uh, Cain and Abel story happens. A little bit of uh, summary, since David asked me to do so. Uh, Cain is the first mortal to be born of a man and a woman in the Bible. Uh, you know, Adam, which, you know, means from the ground, is in a very straightforward sense, animated clay. Uh, the woman... Uh, which is her name until they're expelled from the garden. Uh, her name is simply Isha, which means from the man. Uh, so, I mean, their names contain their origin stories. Uh, Cain is the first, and by the way, she becomes Eve only after they are expelled from the garden and she begins to bear children. So uh, she becomes Eve, which is the, the source of life etymologically only after she becomes the source of life in narrative terms. Now, Cain, it's interesting, uh, his name is not necessarily an origin story so much as, as it is a function story. So Cain is related to certain uh, Northwest Semitic words for blacksmith or uh, you know agricultural worker, but not necessarily field plow, all right? Uh, so in other words, you know, his name... Uh, has to do with the making of tools more than it does with the working of fields. Abel, on the other hand, uh, his name etymologically 
uh, comes from basically, you know, pastoral roots. He is the, the keeper of herds. Uh, or, if you will, Abel is country and Cain is metal. So uh, <laughs> what we get with, and I know the, the sad trombones are coming back out, I know it, but <laughs> um, in this story, uh, Cain and Abel are brothers. They go to make their sacrifices when the day comes for sacrifices. Uh, for reasons that the text doesn't directly explain, and this will come into play pretty prominently in this episode, I have a hunch, uh, the Lord is not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but he is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. So Cain becomes downcast of face. God immediately questions him and says, uh, why are you downcast of face and why are you angry? If you do well, your face will be lifted. All right. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Well, Cain's response to this is not to do well, whatever that means. And again, we can talk about that at more length later. Uh, but rather to lure his brother out to a field, uh, which is notable because this is the place where their differences of labor is most pronounced. Uh, he rises up against Cain, or rises up against Abel, pardon me. And the stance is important there. We can talk about that a little bit later. Kills him. All right. The Lord comes to Cain and says, where is your brother Abel? Cain asked probably the most famous rhetorical question of the story. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, the Lord then asks him, what have you done? And he says, the ground is crying out against you uh, because of the blood of your brother. All right. And actually, I, I, I'm looking at the text here. It's actually the blood that cries out. All right. Now, because of this, Cain is exiled from the place where they are living uh, Cain immediately asked the Lord, uh, won't I be murdered in a, you know, an act of vengeance when people hear that I am a, a murderer, because that's what happens to murderers in the ancient Near East. Uh, and what the Lord does is puts a mark on him. Um, and the mark of Cain famously, uh, is not something that, uh, not something that kills Cain, but actually preserves his life. Uh, it's a mark that says if anyone commits an, an act of retributive homicide against Cain, then not only will the killer be punished, but also the killer's family. All right. So after that, Cain uh, travels from there. He founds a city uh, and he becomes the ancestor of those people in the human species who perform skilled trades, whether that be jewelry making, metalworking, so on and so forth. And music. And music. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'd forgotten that. All right. And most famously, and we'll, we'll get to that, I, I'm probably not going to get to this till a little bit later, but uh, he also becomes the father of violence. So uh, the Lord pronounced over him that if anyone attacks you, he will be avenged seven times over. Uh, and famously, his descendant Lamech declares on his own behalf, uh, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamex is 77-fold. So it's a rich, rich story. Uh, it's a story of violence. It's a story of resentment. It's a story also of the very conflicted roots, according to the Hebrew Bible, of the skilled trades, uh, and you know, up to and including what we would call the liberal arts. Now, a few things that are going on liter literarily here, because 
like I said, I mean, I, I had never really done the Hebrew work on this. It's very, very cool. One of the things that, you know, I had always said before when I talked about Cain, because I hadn't done the philological work, is that the preference for Abel over Cain seems to be entirely arbitrary. We're going to talk as the episode goes on as to, about rather, uh, what subsequent authors did to try to account for that preference. If you look at the actual structure of the text, though, I mean, there's a, there's a very obvious link uh, that I never had noticed before. And, and when I was doing the the exegetical work here, it, it occurred to me for the first time in, you know, decades at this point of reading this text. But uh, Cain is one who works the ground. Well, back in chapter three, uh, after the man and the woman are expelled from the garden, uh, the ground is that which is cursed. So the serpent is cursed, the man is cursed, the woman is cursed, and the ground is cursed. So what Abel works, you know, the the nomadic herds of animals, they are not under that Genesis 3 curse, but the ground that Cain works is. So, of course, Yahweh is going to prefer that which doesn't bear his own curse to that which does. Now, that doesn't explain, you know, uh, why Cain opted to work the cursed ground in the first place, but at the very least, it's a structural connection between the preference of Yahweh and previous moments in the story. The other thing to note uh, is that when Yahweh warns Cain about sin, uh, the structure there, again, is very, very parallel to the curse of the woman in Genesis 3. Uh, the woman is told, uh, your desire will be for your husband. When Cain is warned by God about his own sin, he says, uh, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So there is something going on there. And I mean, it's so brief that, I mean, it's hard even to do any kind of uh, substantial theology with it. But there's definitely something literary going on there. The parallel between the warning to Cain and the curse against the man and the woman in Genesis three. One last thing, and then I'll and then I'll quit making this long speech. Uh, I don't know what got into me. You asked me to talk about Bible, and I just go nuts on it. Uh, one more thing, though, uh, when we are talking about uh, Cain's exile, uh, the obvious parallel there is to Genesis three, when the man and the woman are exiled from the garden. There's also, I mean, just a, a running motif of exile in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, yeah. You've got Moses, who is exiled for murder. So, I mean, there's an echo. You get Israel, which is exiled from the promised land for, uh, you know, idolatry and for the oppression of the poor. That's certainly a parallel. Jacob. Um, yeah, you, you get Jacob, who is exiled because of his deceit. Uh, so it's all over the place there in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, and I... Again, this is something that I, n I never noticed until I was teaching this recently and then had to prep for this episode. Uh, when in the Gospel of Matthew, and I can't speak for the other three Gospels, but when in Matthew uh, Peter denies Christ for the third time, uh, what the narrator says there is, and Peter went out from there. So in a very straightforward sense, Peter is the egg, the last exile before the crucifixion. Hmm. So... Uh, Michael, is there anything else you would add to that 
entirely too long speech. The other motif that recurs throughout the Hebrew Bible that begins with Cain and Abel is God's preference for the younger son over the older, right? Yeah. Uh In in any other society, you would expect the older one to have the rights. And in fact, it seems like the convention is for him to have the rights, as in Jacob and Esau, right? Esau is supposed to get the blessing, supposed to have Mm -hmm. the birthright, but God prefers the younger. Right, Ishmael and Isaac. Yeah. This is something that happens over and over and over again in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, Joseph and his dude bros. Yeah. All right. Well, if Genesis is a bit spare in its accounts of Cain's motivations for killing Abel and God's motivations for preferring Abel, uh, there are some New Testament writers who take up that topic, uh, notably in Hebrews and in 1 John. So I'm going to pitch this one at you, Michael. Uh, How do these writers expand the Genesis account? Um, Why might they be doing so? Well, they, um, they, for the most part, set up this dichotomy between Abel, who is righteous, and Cain, who is unrighteous. So uh, Abel appears in Hebrews 11, which is the, the Hall of Fame, as it were, right? It, it's the, the people who were justified by faith. And it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. First John 3.12 says, let's see if I can find a good version, not as Cain who was, was of the evil one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So if you're looking for motivation, John seems <laughs> to be saying his motivation is he's just an awful guy. Mm-hmm. You know, his works were evil and his brothers are righteous. So that's why he kills him. Two, two other references in the New Testament that I found. Right. Real, real quick, Michael, before you jump there, I mean, and uh, the way that First John narrates that and the way the Gospel of John uh, narrates why people hate Jesus are almost exactly parallel. So Abel ends yep. up being this type for Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Keep rolling, man. Sorry. And, and Jesus himself mentions Abel in Matthew twenty three thirty five, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So again, Abel kind of stands in for Christ there. Um, and then also uh, Jude one eleven, one of the least read books of the New Testament. Uh, Jude says, "Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have ru- Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion." So, again, Abel stands in a in a long line of innocent, suffering, righteous people, and Cain mm-hmm. stands in a long line of uh, of people who make them suffer, wicked people who make mm-hmm. them suffer. Hmm. Well, and, and you can add to that in, in Hebrews 11 when it, uh, the, oh, is it, is it Hebrews 11 where it says that, that, that by faith, Abel, though dead, his blood still speaks? Yeah, I read, I, I read that in a different translation. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that's kind of an odd statement, right? His, he, he still speaks, though dead. Yeah. And then, and then, and then Hebrews picks that parallel up again when it talks about Christ's blood speaking better things than Abel's blood. <laughs> Abel's blood crying justice, justice, and Christ's blood crying mercy, mercy. Well, and then this is—it's a callback to the to the passage in Genesis where it says that Abel's blood is calling to God from under the earth. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, now Abel's blood is calling to all of us too. I, I guess to be more like Abel, even though it, even even though it might mean that you get. Uh, beaten about the head. Oh, sure, sure. It most likely will in, in the logic of Hebrews. Yep. 
Yeah, to yeah. that I would just add that I mean, you know, Hebrews and First John and Matthew and Jude, I you know, Michael picked out, you know, the good the good highlights there are all in this uh wonderful second temple tradition of midrashic readings of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, these are Christian canon to be sure, and I don't want to minimize that, although I'm sure I'm gonna get an email accusing me of doing just that. Uh but they are also part of a literary tradition of taking those very spare narratives and filling in the gaps, uh, which is what Midrash does. It's from the Hebrew uh, uh, verb, uh, darash, to interpret or to read. Uh, And some some of the interesting parallels to those come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, where Abel becomes the ancestor of those who have abandoned the sort of corrupt, decadent, Jerusalem city life and gone out into the wilderness to live simply. Uh, And what the Dead Sea Scrolls do that the New Testament doesn't do near as much is to emphasize that Cain is ultimately the father of all of the jewelry making and perfume making and, and, you know, all of the life of luxury that the Dead Sea Scrolls tend to associate with the Romans and with those who collaborate with the Romans. Uh, Mm. And it's interesting because that suspicion of luxury actually goes all the way back to uh, the Nephilim in Genesis 6, which of course have been in the uh, blogosphere lately because of uh, Aronofsky's Noah movie. Uh, But the Dead Sea Scrolls actually render those Nephilim as Promethean figures who actually come down to earth and give mortals the ability to do this metalworking stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's just fascinating that, you know, the New Testament uh, definitely has its own emphases there, but they weren't the only live options there in the Second Temple period. So I, I find that just utterly fascinating. Well, yeah, that, that, the, that the New Testament writers, they had other cultural valences they could go. They could be like, don't use makeup like Cain's daughters did. Absolutely. Angels talk. There are a lot of directions that they could have gone, but they And which didn't. the Dead Sea Scrolls do go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think that's I I find that tremendously interesting. I love biblical studies. <laughs> <laughs> we know, we know. <laughs> I Well, so with that groundwork laid, uh, we're going to venture out of out of canon to see uh, some things that have been done with uh, with those initial, uh, initial moves uh, that are first made uh, in the, the basic Genesis narrative and then kind of moral, uh, moral directions, theological directions that are, are made in the New Testament canon. Though I think some of the extra canonical valences uh, also continue to be uh, sort of in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pitch this at you, Nathan, because not only are, are you our biblical studies guy, you're also our other Anglo-Saxonist. Yes, there's two of us again, Michael. Yeah, I just like Anglo-Saxon four-letter words. (laughs) (laughs) We're all Anglo-Saxonists. The Old English epic Beowulf, which, haha, I mentioned Beowulf, famously welds together uh, the Germanic background that the the poet has and then the biblical past by making the monster Grendel, a descendant of Cain. So how does, how does Beowulf make use of that Cain image, Nathan? Well, first of all, uh, again, a a brief summary. Hopefully I can actually manage brevity this time. Uh, 
in the early going of Beowulf, uh, when Grendel is first introduced, he's introduced as uh, one who is a descendant of Cain. Uh, Cain, for the Beowulf poet, is first and foremost a kinsman murderer. He's mm. one who uh, unjustly slaughters his own family, which is an anxiety that runs all the way through the Beowulf. Uh, but because Cain is sort of a primordial uh, kinsman murderer, uh, he becomes the ancestor not of the arts, like you would see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, or even of just you know wickedness on a human register like you would see in the New Testament, uh, mm-hmm. but rather he becomes the father of elves and giants and all sorts of inhuman monsters. Now, that's one you know definite... Uh, I'm going to call it another midrash uh, on that Genesis text. The other mm-hmm. interesting departure that Beowulf makes, and, and this is something that I, I only paid attention to this last time that I was teaching Beowulf this semester, uh, is that for the Beowulf poet, Cain is not the founder of cities, uh, but rather he is a dweller in the wilderness like Grendel is. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating because the text of Genesis... Uh, And then later on, you know, a lot of other Christian writers, which we're going to talk about later in the episode, uh, which tend to be very, very suspicious of the corruption and the decadence of cities, make Cain sort of the first urbanite. He is the urbane, sophisticated, decadent, uh, nihilistic figure in that primordial history. In England, where your great... uh, anti-Christian enemy is not the urbanite, but rather the Heathon, the heath mm-hmm. man, uh, or the heathen, uh, if you <laughs> if you like that word better. Is that where that came from? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, did, I did not know that. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, in the old English corpus, and, and David, you can correct me if I go too far on this, uh, heathen seems to have as a primary connotation a geographic designator rather than a religious one. Uh, so, I mean, your enemies are the he- heathens because they come from the heath. Mm. It, it's and, it's a, a wildness yeah, um, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that becomes elided with um, religious content. It's kind of like the, the word uh, paganoi, yeah. mm-hmm. which, which just means country folk. Uh, pag- right, pagan right. Just, just means country folk. Like yeah, Pison. So, yeah, so the Old English and the Romans, which are very suspicious of the people who are out in the sticks, sort of mm-hmm. locate the enemies of true religion out in the country, whereas the Old Testament and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, you know, view the cities as the seats of corruption, uh, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, it is the city folks who are to be feared. Which I'm so sure we was... go into in our town and country episode from a few years Oh, ago. yeah, you're right, you're right. I'd forgotten that. Good catch, Michael, good catch. Uh, but at any rate, uh, can't, uh, pardon me, Grendel and his ancestor Cain, uh, Cain, for the Beowulf poet, are people from beyond the city walls. They are from out there in the dark lands, in evil places. Um, and so are trolls, ogres, so on and so forth. So uh, that's really, I mean, the the height of the Cain origin story. Ethically, like I said, I mean, Cain's first crime is not... Uh, that he was just a you know son of Satan, or that he was faithless, like the New Testament uh, accounts of Cain tend to focus on. But very, much more specifically, he is one who 
murders his brother, which is something that is mm. always on the ro- radar there in Old English battle poetry. So, David, what would you add to that? Because I've, I've talked a lot, but I'm sure there's more to talk about. I mean, well, there, there, there is, there is a lot more. There's, there's a lot more there. This is, this has been a, a fruitful area for, um, uh, for Beowulf scholarship for, you know, just about, just about going on two centuries. Um, so there, there's just no way to hit, hit all the different kinds of things that could be hit. But what's one, one thing that I, that I did want to mention is this, this idea of Cain being, not just the founder of uh, the the ancestor of those who found the civilized arts, mm-hmm. but also uh, the arts of crime. Uh, I found this when I was working on my dissertation. Um, have you read Josephus's uh, book of Hebrew antiquities or Jewish antiquities? Years and years ago. <laughs> okay, in his account of Cain, Cain goes off and sets out and, and sets up this town and basically sets himself up as a kingpin. Um, it, it talks about it. Cain invents, you know, raiding and marauding and money lending. And basically the, the, the town that the town that Cain sets up in Josephus's version is, is this, you know, this vice ridden sin city in mm-hmm. which Cain is like the first godfather. Mm. It's 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 pretty neat. Um it's it's those it's those Cain two... the hut. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cain <laughs> the hut. <laughs> and I I I I found that really really interesting because it 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 made some of the moves that I think the the Beowulf poet is 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 making that you know like you pointed out are are not necessarily original ones, but maybe are 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 kind of there in in the background, and just got just got foregrounded, not so much as invented, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we are going to uh, we're 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 going to skip a whole lot of years <laughs> 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 when we transition to you, Michael. Um, I've I as have never have read. Yeah. <laughs> I've never read Steinbeck's East of Eden, um, probably to my shame. Should I be ashamed of that? But I'm never I don't know if you should be ashamed, but it's a good book. Okay. Well, I've, I mean, there's, I've never there's read lots it. of good books, and there's lots of good books I've never read, so I'm certainly not going to shame you for not reading East I mean, of Eden. Well, <laughs> well I, I think when you have a PhD in English, you can say you haven't read things without um, necessarily acquiring the stigma of being a you know a knuckle dragging non reader. Well, David, um, in our very first episode, you said that your interest stops when gunpowder is invented. Fair enough. And, and with, that, with that in mind, I think it would be very difficult to blame you for not reading a book from the 50s. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, I hear rumors that in East of Eden, it has something to do with fraternal enmity. So can you track the legacy of Cain going through that novel? I can. Um, Seinbeck thought East of Eden was his best novel. And I I think that is probably true. It it is different from many of his other novels. It's a very late one. It is certainly his last noteworthy novel. He wrote four or five after it that I I don't think anybody is going to uh, stand up for. And, and then it, it may well be his last noteworthy book. Although I will stand up for travels with Charlie in search of America which is a, a great uh, 
great book about driving around the country with his dog. <laughs> it's it's a, non, a nonfiction book. But East of Eden is certainly his last noteworthy novel. And, and it is very self-consciously an attempt to write a grand, sweeping, generational American epic. And uh, it's messy the way a novel like that is going to be messy, especially since Steinbeck is very good. Uh, but Steinbeck is in, in, in some ways kind of a workman novelist more than he's an artist, I think. Uh, and East of Eden is him trying to do something very different for his corpus and, and it, it works, but it works kind of the way Moby Dick works by being messy. <laughs> but, but what it does is it adapts the Cain and Abel story over a series of generations two two in particular. Um, so you have, a pair of brothers, Charles and Adam, who both live in California, and they recreate the the Cain and Abel story, frankly. Uh, Ch- Charles is a farmer. Um, Adam is not. And, and they're, they're both fighting for the affections of their father. Uh, Adam gives him a, uh, a puppy. Charles gives him a knife, you know, which is not exactly the fruit of the ground, but is closely related to it. The father prefers the puppy, and Charles tries to kill Adam, you know? Mm. Uh, mixed in with all this is this sociopathic woman named Kathy Ames. Um, in, in a very famous section of the novel, uh, Steinbeck describes her as having been born without any kind of moral sense, the way somebody might be born blind. And and so th- there's a sense that she's predestined to evil and she gets between the brothers. Adam falls in love with her, but there's some, there's some talk that her two children may be Charles's instead of Adam's. And then the the rest of the novel follows the two children. Um, one of whom, beca- uh, they're, they're named Caleb and Aaron. So again, the, the C and A names, almost everybody in the novel has a name that begins with letter C or A. Um, <laughs> Caleb, becomes not not a farmer but someone who is related to agriculture. Aaron wants to be an Episcopal priest, uh, a shepherd, as it were. Um, and and again, there's just in in enmity between them. And and while Caleb does not directly kill Aaron, he puts into motion the process that ends up killing him. And I don't I don't want to go too far into that in case people haven't read the book. Um, and what what is interesting is the novel is less about the themes that you might find in the New Testament. It's not about clear-cut divisions between righteousness and wickedness, because that's not really what Steinbeck does, and it, it's certainly not what he's interested in here. What he's interested in is the idea that we are cursed to repeat the motions of the generations that come before us, which there's a sense of in the Hebrew Bible, right? I, I mean, because mm-hmm. none of this would have happened if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen away. And, and the right. idea is you have not only a repetition, but an escalation of these events. And so there's a sense that's going to happen again. So at the end of the book, and if you haven't read it, just skip ahead a few minutes, because I guess I am going to spoil it after all. Uh, and David, you can just plug your ears if you don't want to know. Um, <laughs> la, at, la, 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 la. At the end of the book, Adam, the, the supposed father of these two children, certainly the man who raised them, is on his deathbed. And he doesn't want to see Caleb because, um, because he blames him frankly, for the, for the death of Aaron. And uh, throughout the novel, they have this uh, Chinese servant, Lee, who, who acts as kind of the philosophical voice of the novel. And he, he talks throughout the book about the Cain and Abel story and how it's been mistranslated. And Lee, Lee convinces Adam to bless 
Caleb. And he does so with, with this word Timshel. Is that how you would pronounce that, Nathan? It's a Hebrew word. Uh, give me some more of the story and I'll tell you if, if you're in the right ballpark. Well, Lee's contention is this, this word has been, it's the mark of Cain and that it has been mistranslated and, ah, okay. and, and what it, what it should be translated is, is thou mayest as in you have the choice to be Cain or to not be Cain. You have the choice to repeat your family's tragedies or to break away from it and start a new world. And this is this is the redemption at the end of the novel, right? It's very it's very Steinbecky and Steinbeck throughout his career is interested in fate, right? I mean, and for most of his career, he seems to come down pretty strongly on the idea that that we're just kind of the products of blind chance. He's he's very naturalistic for most of his career. Here at the end of East of Eden, near the end of his career, he finally he finally comes up with some version of free will, at least for some people. Because of course, uh, Kathy Ames would have no free will. She's a she's a moral monster. She she has no. She has no soul, essentially. She's a, she's a sociopath, I guess is what we'd call her medically. But Caleb, at least, has the possibility to not be Cain, you know, to, to, to act on his own, to not repeat these family structures. Mm-hmm. It's a good book. I mean, it really is. It's very long. Um, it's it, and as I said, it's it's a little sloppy, but I I like long sloppy novels sometimes, and this is, I, I think certainly Steinbeck's best. And, and and if you've read like Grapes of Wrath or Mice and Men and don't like them because of how bleak they are and how fatalistic, East of Eden may be the one for you. Like a lot of like hmm. a lot of bleak okay. American authors, Steinbeck gets a little sentimental in his old age. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Have either of you read that or seen the movie? There's a there's a famous James Dean movie. No, it, it's one of those books that's been on my I should read that list for some years now, but I haven't yet. Well, let me repeat that. If You, you should read it. If you're only going to read one Steinbeck, I would say this is the one to do. Oh, and see, I've, I've read of Mice of Men and Men and also The Grapes of Wrath. So, were, like were they I said, too bleak for you? No, I enjoyed them. Oh, okay. So well, I, you may not like it then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pitch one last one towards you, Nathan, um, and I'm gonna, and it's a big one. So Augustine's City of God, if if Beowulf is presenting Cain as exile, Augustine's City of God is probably the the most developed uh, exploration of the idea of of Cain as a, a colonist. So what kind of city is it that Cain founds in uh, in Augustine's City of God? All right. Well, I'm probably going to run this about five yards up the field and then lateral it, David, because there's so much here. I had to kind of guess at the bits that you wanted to highlight. Uh, no first of all, the the most amusing part uh, is that Augustine, and I'm, I'm going to use this term uh, partly to tweak the noses of, of some of my online sparring partners, but also because I think it's true. Uh, he is doing what I would call another Midrashic reading of Genesis. I mean, uh, I think uh, a rabbi would be proud of all the gaps that Augustine fills in here, uh, not least of all because uh, he actually offers a backstory for how it is that Cain could actually go and establish a city, uh, considering that, you know, uh, according to the narrative in Genesis, you know, he's one of a single-digit number of human beings <laughs> who are named at that point in the story. Uh, and Augustine's answer is, well, he lived so long, uh, and, he, and he's obviously a man of some appetite, uh, so he probably had lots and lots of kids, probably enough to fill up a city. 
<laughs> so, uh, first of all, I mean, the, the city that Kane founds is, uh, basically an extended family reunion. Uh, yep. you know, it is entirely filled with his own children, grandchildren, and other relatives. Uh, Augustine does a fair bit of talking about the fact that, uh, it must be that there were other human beings around because that's just how biology works. Uh, but the, the city of Cain is first of all, a city founded on his prolific appetites. Now, mm-hmm. morally, uh, the city of Cain is one that is, I have to think rereading it, you know, prep, prepping for this episode. Cause it's the first time I've, I've spent any time with this section of city God for several years Augustine seems to be going out of his way to draw parallels between Cain and Romulus. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, this is the the one who founds a city after he kills his brother. Uh, it's one who's, whose main character trait for Augustine is ambition. Uh, mm-hmm. It is the desire to get ahead of one's neighbor. Uh, and therefore it is, I mean, the sort of paradigm example of the earthly city, as far as Augustine is concerned, uh, its ultimate good is not something that transcends the competition between human beings, but it is simply the struggle. Uh, so, I mean, the, the city that Cain founds for Augustine uh, is really a sort of proto-Rome, as far as he's concerned, and he certainly seems to be using this narrative in this part of City of God uh, to set up a contrast to what he's going to talk about later on in the book as the true race public of the, the genuine Republic, uh, which is founded not on love of glory, but love of God. Uh, so David, I mean, those are sort of the, the big outlines. I mean, what bits would you like to bring to our listeners in addition to that? Well, the f- first is, is, is that he, he treats, um, he treats Cain, and Cain's act, uh, first the act of murder, but also the act of founding the city, he treats it as a historical. Um, he treats it as a historical moment because he he spends a good deal of time explaining why it is plausible for him to have enough people to to people a, a city, and <laughs> yeah. and he and he spends a significant period of time explaining why it's probably okay for Cain to marry his sister. Yeah. Because there aren't, because you know, if everyone's descended from Adam, where does that? Who, who does who does Adam marry? Well, you know, Augustine says he must have married his sister. Yeah, I'll admit, David, I expected a lot more allegory when I went to revisit this, and it's like, no, this is all genealogy. <laughs> right. Well, it it what I think it does is it kind of sets up. Uh, Augustine does allegorize. But what he does more of, which I think a lot of people read as allegorization, is treating these particular moments in the Old Testament as, in some sense, paradigmatic precedents. Mm-hmm. It's historical, it's a precedent, but it also establishes a repeated paradigm. Right, so that, right. So that when and you for have, Augustine, I mean, history itself is a text. Yes. How, how, so that, how very postmodern of him, right? Yep. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it's 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 a story God's telling, so it's a text. Yeah. So so you can read it like a story, and you can look for motifs. Um, so so when you have you know the Romulus and Remus uh, fratricide at the founding of Rome, he's not going to say, 
oh, what an interesting coincidence. He's going to say, no, that's exactly what cities are. That's what we should expect mm-hmm. <laughs> from from the earthly city. That's part of that's part of the pattern that we see Cain um, Cain setting. Those things are, you know, to Augustine's mind, tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I I find that really interesting for for him to then. He pulls that to the New Testament, where uh, the New Testament passages that talk about uh, why does why does Cain hate Abel? Well, because Abel's righteous and Cain's wicked, and so r- right there he has his explanation. Augustine has his explanation of why is it that the city of God and the city of man are typically at loggerheads? Mm-hmm. Well, you know it's that way from the beginning. He says so. Uh, yeah, the Cain and Abel story becomes this almost this explanatory narrative of of the whole history of of human society bef- um after fall and before the eschaton mm-hmm. it's really neat go read the oh, city yeah, of yeah. god too and, and i mean <laughs> augustine i mean he is always an intellectual challenge to me because I, i'm going to go ahead and make a global statement realizing i'll probably rescind it a week from now uh, but I think more than any other writer of that sort of late antique, early medieval period, uh, Augustine presents this comprehensive vision of reality that's so radically different from mine. And yeah. I mean, there's definitely moments where I say, okay, ultimately I can't go there and here's why. But there are other moments when I say, boy, I wish I could go there. Maybe I should try. And he feels <laughs> so contemporary in some places and so old-fashioned in others. Oh, yeah, yeah. That it almost doesn't mean anything to call yourself Augustinian. <laughs> I mean, it, it mean means that. something, but... Yeah, I was going to say, so right. you can call yourself that, I mean, almost with no danger. Yeah, almost almost <laughs> every almost every Christian is Augustinian in some ways. But also, like, modern... Philo- I mean, you know, Bertrand Russell follows Augustine on the, the, the subject of time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And, and, I mean, you know, Michael, once you described... Uh, uh, Martin Heidegger as a an atheist Augustinian, uh, and I said, "Oh my gosh, now I can't unsee that." <laughs> well, you almost have to pick the topic under discussion and then declare whether you're Augustinian. Read that. Well, I mean, right. all, you, all you really have to know is that his theology helps make up a, a bulk of Orthodox Catholicism, and mm. he's also John Calvin's favorite theologian. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, Luther. so and Luther. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you do with and that? And Erasmus. <laughs> what, what do you do with that? Except, except to say that he contains multitudes. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that, that's one of my favorite moments in that exchange between Erasmus and Luther in the, the freedom of the will and the bondage of the will is that each of them marshals Augustine against the other and says, the reason you're wrong is because you disagree with Augustine. And, that, <laughs> <laughs> and they're both right. <laughs> it's loverly. Well, I do I do recommend I recommend City of God, but I guess in the same way that you recommend East of Eden, Michael. Um it's great, but it's really long and it's kind of messy. Well, and yeah. and like Nathan, I have City of God <laughs> sitting on my shelf staring at me. <laughs> I mean, like he like him with uh Oh, okay. I was going to say I've, I've, I know you've I've, I've actually read City of God twice. Excuse so me. I, <laughs> I didn't I didn't I didn't mean to suggest otherwise, but that, that's oh, what right, you said right. about East of Eden. Oh yeah, yeah oh he, yeah. I, hey, I've read East of Eden twice. We'll see. There you go. Right. 
All right. Well, we are uh, we are bringing this thing in for a landing. Um, any other Kane references in art or music or literature or anything else that uh, are worth tossing into the conversation as we round it out? Michael? Yes, indeed. I have two of them. Um, first, Charles Baudelaire, the uh, decadent French poet, has a poem called Abel et Cain. And uh, it does what you would expect Baudelaire to do, which is reverse all traditional values about it. And and he seems to proceed from the the assumption that God's preference for Abel's gift over Cain's is completely arbitrary. And that this, this preference has um, been handed down to the present day. So uh, I, I talked at the beginning about how God consistently prefers the younger brother, the, the unexpected brother, which is fine if you are the younger, younger brother, but Baudelaire kind of puts himself in, um, in the older brother's perspective. So I'm going to read the last um, section of Abel and Cain. And I'll have to say, uh, I translated this myself. So if this is a terrible translation, our French speaking listeners can tell me, ah, race of Abel, your carrion will fatten the fuming soil race of Cain work. Hasn't been done sufficiently race of Abel. Here is your shame. The iron is vanquished by the spear race of Cain mount to the sky and down to earth cast God. Pretty Baudelairean, if you've read Baudelaire before, uh, mm-hmm. right, right down to the uh, right, right down to the interest in rotting bodies. Uh, but, 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 but again, this is this is the idea that any any act of any act of preference is an act of exclusion, right? And and it, that Cain was excluded for what in the Hebrew Bible's account seems like not a whole lot of good reason. So I, I think that's Baudelaire's point there, other than he just likes to turn the tables. The other one I want to look at is uh, Bruce Springsteen's song, Adam Raised a Cain, which uh, seems to me to be more about East of Eden than about the actual uh, Cain story. But uh, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's, it's the notion that the sins of the father get passed down to the sons in, an, in a way that you almost can't help. Again, we have here the, the notion that the the sins of the fathers get passed down to the sons, that, that generational transgression repeats itself ineluctably. It's a pretty uh, pretty dark song. Rock's yeah. pretty hard, though. <laughs> cool beans. Nathan? Yeah, I've got uh, one goofy one, one nerdy one, and then one serious one. Uh, so first goofy, uh, when we were prepping for the show, I, I did take the occasion to, uh, pull up on YouTube, the single got no shame from the obscure nineties rock band, brother Kane, and it still rocks. 
<laughs> I was uh, I was hoping it was actually going to be one involving the Disney character Goofy. No, 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 no. Unfortunately, no. Uh, so the second one, the nerdy one, uh, again, I didn't do a whole lot of extensive research on this, but I do remember the, uh, role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which, you know, was big among the Dungeons & Dragons set in that period between Anne Rice and Twilight in American pop vampire history. Uh, the vampires in that role-playing game measured their prestige, uh, compared to other vampires by how many generations from Cain separated them. Uh, so, you know, a a third-generation vampire was basically a legendary figure because the second-generation vampire had actually murdered Cain, and then, you know, that's what actually brought on the curse of vampirism. And then the third-generation ones slaughtered the second generation, so they spoke in hushed tones of the existence of third-generation vampires. Fun stuff, high school days. How could I not revisit? Now, on a little bit more serious note, I would encourage our listeners to uh, get a hold of some art history books. Uh, really, the Baroque period, for my money, does Cain and Abel better than anyone else does, uh, just because this is a story of darkness in the sense of, you know, spare narratives, but also in the sense of the murder of kin, uh, in the sense of, you know, resentment against God. Uh, in the sense of, you know, dwelling a human existence that has so much unknown and so much danger. Uh, if you look at the Cain and Abel paintings of Tintoretto, of uh, Caravaggio, of those, you know, wonderful 17th century Italian Baroque painters, they will give you an image of Cain that will make you appreciate the biblical narrative even more. David, what do you got? Well... Uh, I have a, I have a kind of an odd one, and then I have uh, a little more background on uh, some of the stuff we've already mentioned. Um, I'll start with the odd one, which is that uh, there is this is not this is not Mormon dogma, but uh, there is a pretty active uh, urban legend in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that Bigfoot is Cain. Excellent. Uh, (laughs) uh, Apparently, uh, there is this account uh, uh, a while back from the early days, uh, the early days of Mormonism and back in the 19th century, one of the, I think, first or second generation, um, a, a story that was told, I forget the gentleman's name, about how one day he happened to meet this dark, hairy man uh, walking along the side of the road, and who who introduced himself as Cain and said that uh, said that he couldn't die; he was he was deathless, and so he just sort of roamed the world trying to trying to die and you know goading people into evil. And that that story got retold, and I want to say around about the eighties. Somebody connected it to Bigfoot, and there was no looking back. <laughs> um, so if if you if you Google Mormon Bigfoot Kane, um, you'll find a whole lot of Mormon websites that basically say no, no, we don't actually believe this. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I, I anyway, I, I find that delightful. Uh, the second thing 
is you mentioned um, you mentioned earlier, Nathan, uh, when you were talking about the uh, particularly the the Dead Sea Scroll, the the Qumran communities um, discussions of Cain, and then talking about the Nephilim uh, coming down and mm-hmm. uh, bequeathing these different gifts of culture to humanity. Um, actually, that there there's uh, kind of over time in both the Jew, the Jewish uh, extra canonical works and some Christian extra, extra canonical works uh, like the pseudo-Clementine homilies mm-hmm. actually kind of meld those together so that um, the the daughters of men that the Nephilim are cohabiting with are actually the daughters of Cain uh-huh. so that so that oh, those, interesting. Yeah, so that those two stories are are merged, so that the Nephilim, or you know, the giants in the earth, that seem to have some relation to why the flood happens, are in mm-hmm. fact the the final outworking of Cainite culture to its most monstrous extremity. Well, that's interesting because I, I haven't seen the Noah movie yet, but in interviews mm-hmm. I've heard it seems like Aronofsky does something with that stream of the tradition. Yeah, I think and, he does something a little different with it. But. And he certainly he certainly talks about that in the Midrashic tradition, like so many of the other things we've talked oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I, I want to see that movie. I just haven't had time yet, so. The theologians, who I'm friends with on Facebook, like it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anywho, uh, I, I, I think that's uh, what, what makes that interesting, is that while it's not apparent in Hebrew Bible, um in the post-biblical Jewish tradition, the Midrassic tradition that you point to, Nathan, and mm-hmm. also in the Christian patristic tradition, the flood, the flood and the Cain story are intimately connected. So oh, that, yeah. So, yeah. Yes. So that it's, it is because of the trajectory that Cain started that the flood comes. And I, I've, I, I find that interesting because fr- frequently... Um, in in my kind of memories of Genesis, uh, which were mostly shaped by Sunday school and flannel graphs, um, mm-hmm. Genesis largely consists of a of, of a sequence of stories that I might not actually remember in the proper order. But uh, a a logic was inferred in that sequence later mm-hmm. on, which mm-hmm. which I think is uh, really really interesting. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and make a programmatic statement. I know we don't do uh, ex-cathedra statements. We haven't done any for a year, for several years. But as a programmatic statement, I'm going to venture the claim that the patristic writers and the rabbinic writers are not nearly as different as the cultured despisers of Hellenism would have you believe. And I don't think I'm going to disagree with that. <laughs> just, can't, just can't stay away from it, can you, Nathan? No, I really can't because I, it's it, it's wrong. <laughs> yep. It begins yep. with uh, Matthew Arnold. I'm not sure if it begins there, but Arnold certainly makes that distinction. Well. So you better be careful what you say or Danny Anderson might pull the Danny show off this network. <laughs> or walk across the hall and punch you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well. That was our Kane episode, dear listeners. Uh, what do we have on tap for next week? I, I don't know who's who's steering. Uh, and we all right. We, we gotta all you gotta remember is who did it last week, and it's the other person. There's only <laughs> three of us. Um, 
<laughs> but we we will be doing we will be talking about William Blake's two famous books of poetry, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. Cool. cool. We aren't going to do like the wacky prophetic books, right? No, I mean we'll probably talk about those because Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience are so different from everything else Blake does, and it's the only thing anybody ever reads. That I will probably pitch that question to one of you two, but uh, no, we'll be mostly focusing on. Songs of Innocence Experience. Sounds Sweet fun. deal. Well, I look forward to that. And you can too, listeners. Uh, if you have any questions or comments in response to this week's episode, you can send them to our email, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on our Facebook wall. You can also like us on Facebook. Keep liking us. We desperately need to be liked. Or you can post them in the comment thread on our blog, christianhumanist.org in the show notes post there. In the meanwhile, this is David Grubbs on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer wishing you a good week and leaving you with great advice from Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.